brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Welcome to Soft Rep Radio, on time and on target. And this week again, it's Big Phil. Yeah, that's it. I'm standing in for Brandon again this week. So you're going to have to listen to me for just one more time and then Brandon will be back at some stage. Well, what am I going to talk about this week? Well, I was approached by the Gurkhas. We've all heard about the Gurkhas. And they've been asking me to champagne, champion, champagne. Well, there'll be some champagne if I pull it off. But to champion a new cause for them. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And we're also going to talk about the next stage of selection. Remember last week we covered the trees. So let's start off then, the Gurkhas. Feared and renowned around the world for their fighting prowess. And rightly so, you know, everybody in the UK has got some sort of attachment or some sort of story regarding the Gurkhas. They really are a formidable fighting force. And they've been with us for a very long time. So firstly, who are they? Where are they from? Well, they're from Nepal, the majority of them. are Nepal and some come from India. But mainly from Nepal, as one was explaining to me the other day, there's two types of Gurkha. There's the Nepalese Gurkhas, and there's what they call the Gurkhali Gurkhas. Now, the Nepalese Gurkhas are like the white-collar workers of Nepal. They man the hospitals, they do this, that, and the other. They've all got fairly decent jobs and have had education. The Gurkhali Gurkhas, on the other hand, all live out in the sticks. And those Gurkhas, they're the workers. They really are. Hey, that rhymed, didn't it? The Gurkhas, the workers. There you go. Big Phil's on point already. There you go. So these Gurkhas, very lowly paid, and they go through quite some selection process to get into the Gurkha regiments. They have to apply months and years in advance. They have to travel quite some distance, some of them, and then they have to go through a very grueling selection process, which culminates, uh, as legend would have it, with them chasing a pig around, killing it and eating it. But in reality, it's a lot more complex than that. They become trained soldiers, and then they come and serve in the UK. Now, Traditionally, we've had them serving with us for a, for a very, very long time. They've been, you know, they've done many campaigns with us, and all the recent campaigns has seen Gurkhas in action. They weren't really used in Northern Ireland, but outside of that, I think just about everything else I can remember, the Gurkhas have been involved with. Very, very skilled troops. And obviously, they have a reputation. They have a reputation for being ruthless, and they carry their Kukuri knives, from which I'm sure many people have heard many, many stories of people getting chopped up and and put in the pot with those things, I can tell you. So, yeah, very, very good troops level. You sooner have them on your side than against you, I can tell you that. I've seen them personally working against me in the jungle, uh, where they we used them as our enemy on selection. When uh, we were out in the jungle, those were the people that you're up against. And don't forget, that's their environment, many of them. You know, they are survival experts. They live in the jungle. That's what they do. They're used to that sort of thing. So you're very much in their back garden when you come across the Gurkhas in the jungle. So that's where they're happiest. But that's not to say that they didn't serve down in the Falklands with distinction, where it was wet, rainy, cold, and stinking. So, you know, they're versatile. They're versatile troops. 
Nowadays, their lot within the army is is fairly on par with what we are. But traditionally, because they are effectively mercenaries for our country, they don't get the same rates of pay. But moreover, they don't get the same pension. So I've been approached by, by a group of senior Gurkhas in this country, and they've asked me if I would become like a champion for their cause to try and get them their dues. And when I say get them their dues, a lot of these people, when they left after, I spoke to a guy the other day, 28 years service this man had done. He'd served in Malaya. He'd fought fiercely for this country in Malaya, okay, which was a long, horrible, grueling campaign. He'd spent 28 years of his life serving the UK. And at the end of it, his pension didn't even equate to a quarter of what a private soldier would get. And this man got out as a major. Okay, so you can see that's terrifically unfair. Now, the old school amongst us will say, no, 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 Phil, they're mercenaries. They came over, they get what they get. But that doesn't wash with me. That doesn't wash with me. I believe that they should be brought up and brought in line with what everybody else gets at least. But here's the problem. Okay, so nowadays, the Gurkhas are more in line and their pensions are more in tune and they're on a lot better package. However, there is about 10,000 Gurkhas within the UK right now whose pensions are absolutely appalling. This is how they explained it to me. A lot of them want to go back, back to Nepal, where obviously their families are from. Now, their families can't afford to fly them back out there. They can't afford to get there. And although they do get benefits which keep them alive here, okay, which, which feed them and they're all housed and all that sort of stuff, okay, they have never got enough money to pick up everything they've got and move back to move back to Nepal. Now, in terms of money, what does it cost? It costs about £32,000 a year or something, they've told me, in benefits to keep a Gurkha here if he's, if he's retired, because 99% of them still work after they get out of the army, so they do support themselves, and they have more overpaid into the system. But there are an element of them, okay, who can't work anymore. You get to that age and you can't work. You shouldn't be working past 65, especially not if you spent your life running around the jungle slotting people on our behalf. You shouldn't be expected to work. So, it costs us about 32 grand to keep one of these geezers over here when all he's asking for is a 10 grand lump sum so he can get himself home and he's gone. He's out of our hair and that's what he wants. So they're not begging. They're not going, oh, we want benefits, we want this and other. All they want is the lump sum that everybody else got in the military when they left and they want to go home. So I don't think that's unfair to ask. If you look at all the stuff that they've got up together, some of it, in the day, and I never realised a lot of this stuff was extremely unfair. I'll give you an example. If a Gurkha came to the UK and was posted here, which many of them were for quite some time, they were based in Brecon, they were based all over the place, okay, and they would spend three or four years here. If they met an English girl, okay, and decided to progress that relationship into marriage, if they got married, they would be thrown out of the Gurkhas. Now, that is an equality catastrophe. That is absolutely so far out of order that you couldn't make it up. It's ridiculous. So there's a whole heap of other, you know, wrongdoings that we've, we've, we've inflicted on these people. And it's no good saying to me, feel they're mercenaries, that's, they get what they deserve and all that sort of stuff. You're not giving them the same deal for doing the same job. And that's wrong, all right? That is wrong in anybody's book. These people take the Queen's shilling, like I did, and like everybody else that did serve over here, have taken the Queen's shilling, have volunteered their services to the Crown, have given their services to the Crown, but in return, you get your dues when you leave. And that's it. That's bust. That's what you expect. These guys aren't getting that. All right. So my aim is to try and help them out. Now, we have a, we have a newly appointed veterans minister. So we've got a veterans minister for the first time ever. The government, in turmoil as it is with all this Brexit bullshit and all the rest of it, have said that we can have somebody in a decent position 
who will be the Veterans Minister. Okay, now what does this mean? This means he's got the ear of the big man. This means he's got the ear of the Prime Minister. This means he should be able to get shit done. All right, so at the moment, it's a guy called Johnny Mercer. Now, Johnny Mercer is an ex-captain from some unit. I'm not sure exactly where he's from, but he's a, you know, he's a stand-up guy. I've met him on a number of occasions, and I'm lucky enough to have his phone number in my phone. So on behalf of the Gurkhas, I've spoken to Johnny Mercer, and I've said to him, look, you stand up for the veterans, boss. Yes, I stand up for the veterans, Phil. Well, these men are veterans. These men have served their countries. These, these men are all entitled to wear a veterans badge, which is what I wear, which is what you wear, which is what anyone who's served this country is entitled to wear, okay? Whether it be for five minutes, five years, 50 years, it doesn't matter. You all get to wear that badge and you are all veterans. And so therefore, my good friend Johnny's represents us all, every last one of us. So to see one of us getting an injustice, as we are with my friend the Gurkhas, is out of order. It's wrong. Fish bash bosh, what can we do about it? Well, so far, I've managed to tee up a meeting with the senior Gurkhas and Johnny. All right, so, so Johnny and the senior Gurkhas are going to meet, and hopefully they can present their case in such a way that John will understand and pass it on up the chain. Because they were being represented by a number of people, but the issue sort of like went away. And at the moment, if it's not Brexit, it ain't heard. But that doesn't stop the fact from that there are probably 10,000 of these people in this country right now who just want 10 grand so they can bugger off home. And I don't think that's a lot to ask, to be fair. All right, just give them their money and let them go home. All right, where they can spend the rest of their days as old men with the people around them who love them. All right, not saying that we don't love them, but if he wants to go home, if a man wants to go home, he should go home. They're not a drain to our society. Their children are never in our jails, okay? And they work hard and they're honest people. So why is it in a time when we do seem to have a problem with some other people coming to this country who aren't so well behaved as these people, that we don't look after the ones that do behave themselves, all right? It's time that they had a voice, and I'm going to do my best to be that voice on social media and get them the profile and the recognition and all the rest of the stuff that they rightly deserve and see if we can't get a few of these old men. They are old men. See if we can get a few of these old men sent home. So to that end, please follow me on my social media, okay, which is at Big Phil Campion on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And if you see my tweets about the Gurkhas, please, please retweet them. Please get the word out there, because this ain't fair. It ain't fair. We need to get some justice done here. We need to get these Gurkhas looked after, because I'm telling you, they looked after us. And there wasn't one of them that ever flinched in battle. There wasn't one of them that ever didn't want to pull the trigger. And there wasn't one of them that didn't ever pull his knife out when he needed to, okay? And even in recent times, they have behaved in an impeccable manner. They've won Victoria Crosses. They've won military crosses. They've won every ward for a valour this country has. Okay, so why can't we put a few quid in their pockets and send them home when they want to go home? They're not asking to be here. They're not asking us to, for handouts. They're just asking for what they are worth, okay, and what everybody else is worth. They're not asking for any more. They're not asking for any less. They're asking for what they, as veterans of this country, are worth. So I know I'm dumping it on America's doorstep at the moment, but the more people I can get behind this, the better. And if you start retweeting this stuff, if you start talking about it, it actually starts making sense. And if we can make people listen, we can make people understand. And if we can make people understand, then we got it. People might actually start and help us. So that's my aim. I'm going to champion the cause of the Gurkhas. I'm going to help them out because they are great, great race of people, a warrior nation indeed, a nation which is not scared to get its hands dirty when it comes to a bit of work on someone else's behalf. All we're saying is, weigh them in properly. Give them the dough that they deserve, okay? So that's I'm not, not going to go on any more about it. Like I say, I speak very highly of the Gurkhas. I've seen them operate, and they've served this country well. Let's see if we can serve them. So 
Let's continue with a bit of selection talk. So we got up to the trees last time when I told you about my last day in the trees where we picked up on the helicopters and had a beer as we flew across the canopies and went back into Batang camp. And there we cleaned our rifles and waited for people to be binned and all that sort of stuff, which was, which was a horrifying day. And like I say, they gave you one last chance to drop yourself in trouble by getting you as much beer as you could and seeing what you were like when you were drunk. So what happens then? Well, we flew home. We flew home as well. It's a very uncomfortable flight because you fly back to the UK on the same plane as the guys who have failed selection. Okay, so it's sort of like it's an us and them now. They're looking across the thing thinking, look at them, and we're looking across the thing thinking, don't look at me because I don't want you to look at me anymore because it's one of those things. It's mega uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? It's like being in a, being in a situation, and it's not, it's not nice. Anyway, so you got that little treat, and then when you finally get back to the UK, they obviously go their way, and you go back to Hereford. Now, at this stage of the campaign, this is the first time that the officers do something different to the men. Now, the officers on selection, okay, they'll probably only come to the unit for a couple of years to start off with, they'll then go back somewhere else, they'll do this, that and the other, okay, and they're on a slightly different deal, whereas a trooper will revert his rank, he'll go down to the bottom of the pile and he'll work his way back up again, an officer retains his rank, okay, and he comes in as a troop commander. So, he's usually a captain by this stage of the campaign, he won't revert that at all, he'll keep his captain's rank, but there's a clause to all this. When you come out of the trees, they have to do a thing called Officers' Week. Now, I'm not an officer, and so I obviously didn't do Officers' Week. But when I was in the squadron, I sat in on an Officers' Week and watched some of the stuff that goes on. And to say they grill them for a week is an understatement. They test them. They test them to the absolute limit of the brain power, okay? All right, and these are clever men. These aren't, you know, these aren't slouches. These aren't, these aren't grunt grunts, all right? These are men, these are thinking men doing a soldier's job, okay? They're officers, they're good officers, and they get stretched. They get asked lots and lots of questions. They get given scenarios, they get given battle plans, and they have to produce and explain why they've produced what they've produced in front of a lot of people who've done a lot of stuff, okay? So you could be a young officer now, and you could be sat in front of the CO of the regiment, the RSM of the regiment, a whole squadron of the regiment, DSF, Director of Special Forces, and all sorts of other characters in this room who you don't even know who they are, and they are going to grill you. They are going to absolutely tear you a new one, okay? They really are. So it's an extremely tough week. What are the troopers doing during this time? Well, troopers, we do a little bit of, uh, we do some extra weapons, we do some heavy weapons. I think we did the mortars, we did a 50 cal machine gun, we did the 203s, so we went to Brecon, we did some stuff on the ranges. We actually had two weeks where it wasn't too bad at all. And obviously, we know what's happening with the Rupert's, with the officers, so they are getting absolutely beasted into hell, and we're having quite a good time. So, Although they're on a slightly different deal, and rightly so, at that stage of the campaign, you've got two weeks where you can actually, for the first time on selection, not chill, but you're out there, you're learning, and now it's more on a level. You've done your real, real honking graft so far in the jungle, and this is a good time for the body to start repairing itself. Toenails start reappearing now, and the skin on your back's growing back, and all that sort of stuff. All the bites are going down, all the fawns are now coming out your fingernails and all the rest of the stuff, okay, because that dirt from the jungle is going to be ingrained, there's going to be all sorts going on, you know, it's now time where, you know, all the little bites are starting to get infected, so you've got to go and get to the med centre, clean everything up, and just make sure that your body's back in a decent shape, do you know what I mean, it's now a chance if you need to, to go to the dentist, the doctor, get yourself sorted out, so it's a couple of weeks, there's not too much pressure on you, and you're working extremely hard, so... It was actually, for the first time on selection, for the first time on selection, you're actually thinking, wow, this is quite chilled. And then, boom, they hit you. They're back in the classroom, and you're doing, you're doing combat survival. 
They're teaching you everything you need to know to survive. They're teaching you about fire, they're teaching you about water, they're teaching you about shelter. The staples of survival. You're getting lecturers in, you're getting this in, you're getting that in. You're now living in the field again, you're doing stuff, you're cutting around, you're, everything they're teaching you, you're practicing and all that sort of stuff. And it's extremely, like I say, it's interesting again. It's a beast thing, but it's interesting. So all the time you're learning, it's fun. And I thought it was a great time. Although it's again, they're being quite tough on you. <laughs> I remember every man got issued a chicken and all that sort of stuff. And you learn about killing animals and stringing things up and catching stuff and all that good survival stuff. So you're getting, you're getting some really good lessons. And like I say, at the end of that, you start learning about resistance to interrogation. Again, you get lots of lessons. They got people in who'd been captured and all that sort of stuff, and they're talking to you. They're relaying their experiences, and you learn, 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 right? All the time you're learning. And then at the end of that phase, I'm not sure how long that was. It might have even been a couple of weeks, you know, but whatever it was, two, three weeks, whatever it was, at the end of that phase, you then go into the, to the real sort of like meat of what you've just learned. They set you, they capture you all up, they round you all up, you get captured. You get taken down to the bare bones, they take your clothes off you, they search you, they put you in some honking rig, they take you out into the middle of nowhere and they set you loose in the countryside of the UK and there's now people after you. Okay, so you're on the run. And you disappear out in the boo loop and the deal is quite simple, get caught, go home. All right, so you don't want to get caught at any cost. Get caught, you're off. So within that time, with the skills that you've learned, you've also got to make a few decisions and a few Things have to be done. I can't go into it too much on this platform because it's not, you know, some of it's quite sensitive stuff. But believe me, everything that you've learned, you're now putting into practice. And it's not easy. You're not just sort of like evading capture. You've actually got things that you have to do whilst you're out there. Because obviously, if you were doing this for real, you'd be behind enemy lines and you'd be trying to get yourself back in some way, shape or form, trying to alert people and trying to let people know where you are and evade the capture at the same time. So, it's a very stressful period. There's not much sleep. You're keeping an eye out. There's dogs coming after you. There's helicopters up. There's thermal. There's, there's night vision. There's all sorts of stuff coming after you. And you've got to keep yourself on the run. Anyway, at the end of this period, you do get captured. And you go down the pan as you would with any enemy. Now, again, I can't go too into the procedures after you've been captured. But believe you me, it's as real as it can be without actually killing you. All right? They absolutely put you through your paces. They keep you captured. They interrogate you, you get all the lessons that you've learned, you, you have to imply them implicitly. If you break, if you crack, if you give up, that's it, you're gone, you're bust, you're out of there. Okay, that's your selection finished, your time is up, please go home, okay? So it's an extremely tough, tough time and an extremely tough course. By the end of this stage now, you really are whittling the numbers down, there's not that many left at all. And it's, you know, I can't remember how many were left at this stage of the campaign on my course, but it wasn't many, okay? So you're out on the run. Now, they do actually bolster this course up to make it worthwhile doing, and you have a few pilots on the course, and you have a couple of other people from different units that might find themselves behind enemy lines and having to escape. Now, you actually think that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a hindrance, to be honest, because as well as you trying to cut around the area and do your bits and pieces, you've also got other people now that you want to, you want to avoid on the same course as you. You're like, I don't want to go near you. You're going to get me caught, you lunatic. And whereas you're just going to go back to your helicopter and fly it and do whatever you've got to do, I'm going to get binned. I'm going to go back to a normal army unit and I'm not going to be able to carry on. So you've got to be very careful at this stage because you could get suckered into something that could get you thrown off the course. All right. And like I said, these geezers are just going to go back to being fighter pilots or whatever it is they came to do. Okay. You're going to go back to a rifle company having failed the course having gone through all this on selection you could get binned for something as stupid as getting caught nicking some food from somewhere or something so you've got to try and stick to the rules and do it properly that said like i say there's always a plus side to everything that i do 
again, I enjoyed it because I'm learning. I've now put myself up against, you know, we had a unit of men looking for me. I'm putting myself against those men. It's me against them. That's the way I saw it. Very, very determined to get through this phase, determined not to be beaten and all that stuff, sort of stuff. And it really was good to be having the, in the driving seat. There's nobody telling me what to do now. I'm out there doing my own thing. I'm fighting against them, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to evade capture. I'm on the run. I'm doing all my drills. I'm looking at all the stuff that I've been taught is coming to life now. And a very, very worthwhile part of, part of the course it was. It really extremely enjoyable. Once you get captured, now that's a different matter. That's when it starts. That's when the P turns into pain, mate. I'm telling you, all right? That's, that's a different matter. Again, like I said, I can't go too into it, but believe me, you, it's, uh, it's, it's a very unpleasant time. You finish this phase, and then it's off to do a bit of parachute. Now, I was already paratrained when I went on selection, so I didn't have to do the first four or five jumps, which were on a static line, round square, round round shoot, just a, just a hop and pop out the side of the aircraft. We then moved on, we did some square shoots, a bit more advanced stuff, um, again, static line, but static line squares, steerable stuff with kit, all this sort of stuff. Did a bit of counterterrorism for the first time, which was, again, it's all new, you're, you're in black kit, it's the first time you've ever seen it, it's what you joined for, it's, you know, it's extremely enjoyable. You can still get binned on this stuff, do you know what I mean? But it's now you're almost reaching the finish line. Like I say, you finish your counterterrorism stuff, can't remember how long it was again. You're being exposed to more of the animal now, you're seeing a lot more selection. And then, like I say, finally, when you've done all that and you've got your, you've got your wings and you've done your jumps and all that sort of stuff, you've now got your halo wings, you're ready to be badged. And I remember it was a quite a somber affair. There wasn't that many of us left at this stage of the campaign. We went into the we went into the lecture theatre, and the CO came in and he chucked each one of us a sand beret, and that was it. He had made it. He was in he was in the SAS. And it's one of those things where you're sort of like the elation is with you for about 20 seconds because before you know it, you're down the stores, you're getting your kit, and you're bottom of the pile again. You've gone from passing selection where you could be 15 foot tall to the bottom of the pile. You're now surrounded by people that have been on ops, people that have done this, done that, done the other. You're the bottom of the pile again, okay? It's not so evident. They don't treat you like a complete numpty, but you are the new boy. You are the T-boy. You are the man who, if there's a shitty job, is going to do that shitty job, okay? So you're the bottom of the heap. So you've just been through this, this course. You've achieved what you wanted, but in true, true sense of everything I've taught you on this on these free lectures about selection, if you remember the very first thing I taught you, it was the regimental ethos. And the first regimental ethos was an unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And this is where you see it on a mass scale for the first time, because you've just passed selection, but you haven't reached the top of the mountain. You're about just in the foothills, okay? You're now striving. You're striving to go further and further within your career. And like I say, that really is... That is how selection works. So, like I say, you get in, but you're by no means have you made it. You're now at the beginning of a very, very long and difficult journey, and things only get harder and longer. But to be fair, they get more enjoyable too. So, you know, the upside of it is the harder you work, the more enjoyable it is. That's the end of my talks on selection. I've given you three good talks on selection there. So I hope it's given you a bit of an insight into what we do over here in the, in the limey side or our side of the pond. And like I say, any of you that have done selection elsewhere with the SEALs or Delta, you can understand where David Sterling's impact has actually come into play with your regiments and with what you're doing, okay? Because 
I remember somebody saying about special forces soldiering, all right? Special forces soldiering isn't dangling off ropes or falling out of helicopters or jumping out of planes at 20,000 feet, okay? Special forces soldiering is the basics and the basics done well. And that's it, all right? That's, that's what you've got to remember. The foundation of any soldier starts with the basics and those basics can be built on and we can take them in any direction. But if those basics aren't strong, the platform isn't strong. And if the platform isn't strong, we can't overload it. And if we can't overload it, we cannot build an operator. That's it. But don't forget to check out everything else on SoftRep, SoftRep.com and Crate Club. <laughs> Crate Club? CrateClub.com, okay? Go and have a butchers there as well because there's some top kit brought to you by some top operators. So that's me for the week. Until next time, who dares wins and I'll see you all later on. You've been listening to SoftRep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio.